From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The national spotlight on missing and murdered Indigenous women is growing. For some Indigenous advocates for survivors, attention helps, but... There was a great many of us, myself included, who were kind of slow to kind of step into this conversation around missing and murdered because of that, because we felt there was so much missing from that conversation. A grassroots effort to build community support and prevent violence. Then where is the Western Conservative Summit finding optimism? Plus, who buys a newspaper these days? I often get the uh, response from people, congratulations and condolences. For the new owner of the Gunnison Country Times, it's all about community. And later, a bicycle crash shattered his face, but through faith, he continues to ride the Rockies. Colorado Public Radio remains committed to taking you on daily explorations into the world of music and into the news of the day, bringing you more backstories and perspectives with an expanded schedule. Your support ensures a strong foundation for the compelling coverage and storytelling that you will continue to rely on. A popular way to support? Start an evergreen membership and commit to giving a little each month. Colorado Public Radio is powered by you. Give because the news and music matter at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Indigenous people in the United States are victims of high rates of violence. The Centers for Disease Control estimates about half of Native women are raped or experience unwanted sexual contact. Homicide is among the 10 leading causes of death for Native men. The national spotlight on the issue has grown in recent years. People march with red handprints painted across their mouths. Red dresses hang from trees to symbolize missing women. Since 2017, the federal government has recognized May 5th as a National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Native Women and Girls. There's been a flurry of policy action as well. The Trump administration initiated a presidential task force on the issue. Under the Biden administration, the Department of the Interior recently established the Missing and Murdered Unit within the Bureau of Indian Affairs Office of Justice Services. For sexual assault advocates who work with Native survivors in Colorado, the work began long before it was broadly visible, and they know that there is still a long way to go. It's more than the red dresses we hang from trees, and it's more than a red handprint on a face. So definitely doing the work and understanding trauma that comes with Indigenous communities and history, and then understanding how to dismantle a lot of the different things that come into play. So then we're able to advocate for our communities in a better and healthier way. That's Kelsey Lansing. I'm from the Dine tribe, so Tohana Yanishna Hashihi Bashashin Maidishni Dashiche Kilichutni Dashinale. I am originally my parents are from um Arizona and Utah. I was raised in Cortez, Colorado. Lansing is a cultural outreach coordinator with the Sexual Assault Services Organization in Durango and on the Southern Ute Reservation in Ignacio. She got together with two other women who help Indigenous people who've been victims of violence. They formed a grassroots task force last year to work toward solutions. Monica Snowbird is the program director of Hasea Advocate Program. She provides specific advocacy for Native survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, and stalking. Monica works in in Colorado Springs, so she kind of has that urban perspective. Kelsey was raised in Cortez and works in Durango. So she kind of has this hybrid of of tribal community and a little bit of kind of our rural community work there. I, I work within reservation. 
That's Gina Lopez. She's a member of the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe in Toyak, Colorado. She's the Rural and Indigenous Community Specialist for the Colorado Coalition Against Sexual Assault. They call their effort the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Relatives Task Force. Of course, you're going to hear about missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. But then we start to consider, you know, the rates at which men were being missing and murdered and our elders and our two-spirit LGBTQ people. You know, we don't want to just focus solely on women and girls, but expanding that to all of our relatives, no matter how they identify. I sat down with Kelsey Lansing and Gina Lopez to hear their experiences with advocacy for Indigenous survivors of assault and what solutions they're working on. They think national visibility for missing and murdered Indigenous folks is crucial, but they also see important nuance left out of the narrative. There was a great many of us, myself included, who were kind of slow to kind of step into this conversation around missing and murdered because of that, because we felt there was so much missing from that conversation. And at the time, you know, we saw in media, we saw in movies, we saw kind of this rise of awareness. And it was really frustrating for those of us who were kind of doing the work on the ground. What we felt was missing from that was the folks who were maybe not yet missing or murdered, but were probably very well on their way to that. My work really is centered around work within reservation um, and between reservations. Um, and I would think about I would think about survivors. I would think about victims and and this these long drives that they would have to take just to get to, you know, law enforcement, just to get to a hospital and all those things to get to an, get to an advocate. Three, four, five hours, six hours sometimes of thinking, what am I doing? You know, do I should I really go? Um, how bad is this really? Just kind of talking yourself in and out of things and also the importance of having the support of an advocate too. Um, just all of those things kind of ran through my mind. And what what was missing for us was kind of the inner workings within tribal communities that um, we felt and I, I still feel lend to this crisis um, and, and that there are different communities in which this happens in and and I think in, in tribal communities, folks feel we're so close-knit that if someone were to go missing, surely we would know. And for us who work within those intersections on the ground, we understand that missing looks very different. Um, you can be missing in many different ways. In tribal communities, we know exactly who did it. Maybe they'll go to prison, maybe they won't. And, and lots of times they'll return, they'll return back to their community within only a few years, um, even when convicted. And, well, you don't really see a whole lot of um, accountability for, that, for the violence, which is why a lot of folks leave, I feel. A lot of folks leave their tribal communities. Then they find themselves in, you know, urban communities. And now they get counted as the missing and murdered in those communities um, and probably perpetrated upon by non-Native folks that way. And um, it's not just... It's not just the violence itself, but it's also um, our tribal governments um, for purposes of their business. Um, and maybe that's how they earn their money. Don't want it necessarily known how prevalent violence is um, in their communities. So when I say that, you know, what's missing from the conversation a lot. So a lot of nuance in there. Um, yeah, I hear you saying that when people enter the conversation at talking about people who have been missing and murdered, that is not the beginning of the conversation and it's also not the solutions. And there's so much on either side of that that we have to be talking about. Mm -hmm. um, Kelsey, I also want to start this conversation with you. Where do you think that the national conversation, what's being left out? 
You know, there is a lack of awareness when it comes to issues surrounding violence against Native women. There's a lot of distrust for, you know, law enforcement or tribal police officers or FBI or BIA. So there is that gap um, and thinking about the policies as well in different ways in which Native people have gone through the ringer with um, government policies. And now, like currently, we have the changes in those policies trying to include Native people. But still, there are loopholes that a lot of people experience, or they just don't have faith in the system because it's the system was used against us throughout history. And then you have communities of people that are, you know, still trying to bring back their traditional ways. So then in some traditional ways, understanding violence or speaking of violence is not something that you're supposed to do as it could be seen as taboo. And having tribal people trying to name and trying to you know, find justice or healing in that process has been super difficult. Um, there's a lot of headway in those spaces and having open conversations so I see that has changed, but I also see that it's still, um, you know, lacking in a lot of different spaces. Lopez alluded to jurisdiction. It is complicated on tribal land, so it can be tough to get a case through the justice system. Depending on whether or not the perpetrator or victim are Native and the nature of the crime, cases can fall under tribal, state, or federal authority. And in that maze, some cases fall through the cracks. I don't know how many 40-hour advocacy trainings I've had where they kind of lay it out for you like this. But even that I almost had to throw out with my criminal justice degree because it really didn't apply to what we were experiencing in our tribal communities. I don't know how to write that book. I bet you if I wrote it, it would be wrong like the next week. (laughs) On top of all that... It's tough to get a clear scope of the problem because data is patchy. A recent Urban Indian Health Institute study found that of the nearly 6,000 cases of Indigenous women and girls reported missing or murdered in 2016, only 117 were logged in the Department of Justice's missing persons database. In Denver, they found seven cases that weren't logged. And there are other limitations. I noticed that a lot of our data, it's very specific for like men and women, But I would like to see more um, those who are two-spirit or those who are elders and kids. Lopez and Lansing think governments and justice systems are important partners in the long run. But what they're really optimistic about is building on community strengths to prevent violence and support victims. Their task force actually grew out of Lansing's idea to coordinate a security network for survivors who need care outside the Four Corners. The safety network that I had envisioned was like if we're working with a Native American client that needs to get to, you know, Colorado Springs, can I like see them leave on the Greyhound and have just like a continual contact so that I know that they're getting from Durango to Colorado Springs. And then from there, they have a warm handoff of someone who can work with them. Because going from one place to another is super frightening for some people, especially if it's a place you don't even know. So that's one of my big dreams. What barriers do you see to getting there? Um, Not enough Native-specific or Native-funded organizations or work in Colorado. And that's something I feel like we could work on. A lot of Native American people were relocated to the Denver area from their tribal reservations. 
I would feel like it would be great to have that resource available to them, not just in the Denver area, but like in the Southwest area or any corner of Colorado. Gina, what about for you? What kind of solutions do you want to see? I would like to see search happen. I'd like to see a search and rescue effort happening immediately. Um, Because that's 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 a huge kind of criticism of also this work is, um, you know, we'll get out there and look, you know, get out there, go look for them. Um, Because we also know because of all of these barriers and the systems in place and all of that, um, the the time frame and and all of that uh, between whether or not it's going to be taken seriously and and the systems folks are going to are going to respond and get out there and look has so many variables to it. and so for me, it would be great to have this task force have that kind of pull so that, you know, y'all can go ahead and sort out those those uh, details if you want. But we need to be able to like go out there and look. We need to be able to build that sense of community with each other so that they know that someone's coming to look for me. Um, even if we're not looking for one of our own relatives, we're out there helping to look for other folks. Um, I think kind of helps to build not only that awareness, but that kind of that caring and whatnot that ne- that really needs to happen between us, um, that we care about who, who goes missing. You've got to make a lot of noise. You make a lot of noise. You, you're not as easy to ignore. And I think that we've got a long time being ignored, especially here in Colorado. So it sounds like this task force, you're working on creating a safety network. You're working on looking for people. You're also working on knowing who to look for. Are mm-hmm. you creating a database or tell me a little bit more about how you're identifying people that need to be looked for? Yeah, Monica and I have been um, trying to comb through what's already been reported or presented. And then from there, we are wanting to look more into our communities. You know, just as Jana had said, that's going to push a lot of buttons. Um, especially in in certain areas where, you know, a person may have a criminal history or a really troubled past or a traumatic past. Um, and that's where we have the discussion of, you know, who are we to say who is or is not going to be represented or recognized on um, as missing or murdered. We want to honor the the families. We want to honor the people that are coming forward and talking about their missing and murdered person. You know, also, I want to understand, too, that, you know, in some tribal nations, you don't say their name. So we do have some people that are unidentified, you know, and so that's something that I feel we also hold space for. Um, I know for my Navajo tribe, you don't post pictures or you don't say their name because that draws them to you. So understanding those different cultural ties for different people. Um, so then they, we might have someone who doesn't have a name, but we know that their family came forward and wanted to you know, have some type of representation, but we're not recognizing specifically the name, but more of like the spirit of that person. Lansing hopes the database that they're working on will show results. We're really trying to help shed more light about the issue that is happening in Colorado, um, you know, and that we would like to see more done um, for our Indigenous people in Colorado, whether it is sexual violence, domestic violence, um, missing and murdered. And I feel like we've had so much groundbreaking, you know, movements happening throughout 
since I've been researching this till now, you know, our Navajo Nation, um, you know, they recently came, brought a task force. They're working on human trafficking issues. And that was not a conversation we had because it was taboo to talk about. Um, and so having like, that's my hope and dream for, you know, Colorado to recognize that there are issues that are going on with our indigenous people. They're not safe in these spaces. And how are we going to advocate or provide more services for those people? And our law enforcement paying attention to the different, you know, tribal nations and who's going missing and how are we searching for them or, you know, being able to confidently make a report that someone is missing without having stereotypes or without having the additional questions of, you know, is this a pattern they've done before or were they drinking? Were there drugs involved? Do they have a history? Um, you know, any of those questions. Lopez says they've already had small wins. In Montezuma County, the Victims Compensation Program now covers traditional Native counseling and healing from an elder or spiritual healer. And she's been getting more requests to facilitate cultural competency training from medical providers and other organizations that assist assault survivors. We have some very strong Native voices from our tribal communities who are showing up. And just, I think, for me, a really important part of our identity is the passing on of knowledge, the passing on of, of, of power, of, of voice. And so that's that's what I hope this task force, force is also about is, you know, it, 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 it's an important issue. It had to be picked up. It has to be carried. And, and hopefully we'll be passing it on and it'll continue to go forward and, and just strengthen and get louder and, you know, and all of those beautiful things. That's, that's what I hope happens. That's Gina Lopez. She's the Rural and Indigenous Community Specialist for the Colorado Coalition Against Sexual Assault. Kelsey Lansing is a cultural outreach coordinator with the Sexual Assault Services Organization in Durango and Ignacio. They formed a grassroots task force on missing and murdered Indigenous relatives. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Paula Williams is transgender and author of As a Woman, our pick for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. It's a fresh look at the gender gap. She has no idea how much harder it is for her than it is for the guy in the Brooks Brothers jacket in the office across the hall. I know. I was that guy. Tickets for June 30th at CPR.org slash Turn the Page. Supported by Wanabo Love Keller Mendenhall Smith Wealth Management Group of Wells Fargo Advisors. The aspirations for this year's Western Conservative Summit are as big as, well, the American West. It's an in-person event this weekend in Denver. Last year it was virtual, and it'll feature a lot of regional voices. Jeff Hunt is the summit organizer. He's also the director of Colorado Christian University's Centennial Institute. Jeff, welcome back to the program. Avery, good morning. You got a good synopsis of the summit right there. That's exactly <laughs> what we're trying to do, establish a Western conservatism. I'm glad. Well, the summit theme this year, it is Frontier Freedom. Your literature describes it as an honest and optimistic perspective, much needed in 2021. What is it about this year that you think especially requires an optimistic perspective? Well, you know, I think the conservative message and the conserv and conservative public policy is really, really important, especially for the Western United States. So uh, in the kind of Washington, D.C. circles, the issues of the West often get ignored. And what we're trying to point out is that 
the leftward drift of much of the Western United States, so Washington, Oregon, California, now New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, does have serious public policy consequences. And uh, we're kind of seeing that play out in the state of Colorado. We're seeing it in cities like Portland uh, and states like California as well, where from our perspective, um, liberal policies have not led to thriving states. We have problems with homelessness. We have problems with drug use. We have problems with crime. We have the breakdown of the family that's taking place. Uh, energy restriction policies uh, that, are, that are harming energy independence in this country. And so uh, I think the conservative worldview, which embraces family and limited government and personal freedom and the original intent of the Constitution, offers a, a very optimistic uh, view for these states and cities that are often suffering from uh, breakdowns as a result, from our perspective, of liberal policies. So you've outlined a number of policies there. Of course, we are here in Colorado, and sometimes it's called a purplish state, but it has gone pretty democratic in the last two presidential cycles. And all three branches of the state government are controlled by Democrats. What about that says that this is the place where Republicans should be looking for hope? Well, you know, we are, we're a 501c3, so we're not in the business of electing anybody or getting involved in elections or campaigns. Oftentimes, in summits where we have candidates, we invite both candidates to share their perspective. But I, I think a lot of us look at Colorado from the conservative perspective and go, there are serious problems with this state. Um, it has changed dramatically. We have homeless problems. We have crime problems, big spikes in crime. Uh, the efforts to push the energy industry out of the state of Colorado have had, are going to have long-term consequences, not just for when, jobs and schools in our state, but for uh, for the nation as well. When you say a lot of us, just to be clear, who are you talking about? It's conservatives, you know. Uh, so this is the the Western Conservative Summit is the largest gathering of conservatives in the Western United States. We end up with conservatives coming from all over the country, but this year we have a strong virtual component. So we'll have people tuning in from all 50 states and even countries outside of America that are watching. And so from our perspective as conservatives, as Western conservatives, uh, we want to put forth a vision when it comes to policies and ideas that we think is better for this part of the country than what's happening right now under more liberal leadership. I know Governor Polis spoke a few years ago. Did y'all consider inviting him again? Yeah, he did. He, and that was wonderful. He's very well received and uh, and we enjoyed having him. We were so grateful that he came. And every year we invite uh, Democrats to be a part of the Western Conservative Summit. Uh, this year, uh, they did not confirm. We weren't able to schedule and work out schedules with them. But um, uh, we did not invite him this year. We are focusing really on experts in Western lands issues, Western energy issues. And so um, that's kind of where you'll see the summit go. We spent the last five months traveling all over the Western United States with a film crew, talking with experts on these land issues. The fact that the federal government owns 50%, just about 50% of the land in the Western United States. And these aren't national parks. This is not national monuments. There's a lot of BLM land and the impact that has on the Western United States. These are uh, some counties that have 92% of the land is owned by the federal government. They, they don't have a tax base. They can't pay for their schools. They can't pay for their roads. Uh, so we we spent a lot more time dealing with kind of issue experts this year. Next year, we'll get back to the campaigns. We'll get back to the elected officials and the leaders and the candidates and all that stuff. But this year, it's really going to focus in on those Western issues. 
Jeff, Donald Trump spoke at the summit in 2016, before he won the presidential election. In 2019, his son, Donald Trump Jr., spoke here. Given the changes of demographic in our state and the outcome of recent elections here, I hear you focusing pretty exclusively on Western issues. Is it harder to generate momentum for this event in this location? Uh, That's a really good question. This is a conversation we've had internally about the failure of national conservatives to take the Western United States seriously. Uh, If you look at, this is just an example, like I mentioned, we're not in the business of politics, but if you just look at what the DNC did and making Denver a priority, right? They put their conference here in 2008, President Obama, President Biden, Hillary Clinton, lots of time out here connecting with the people, building those relationships, and helping lead Colorado from a more reddish, purplish to a a pretty solid blue state right now. We don't think that national conservatives have really made the, the Western United States that big of a priority. And that's a serious issue, as we saw during the last presidential election. Um, as as the states are turning more and more blue, uh, we used to just kind of laugh off the left coast, right? It was California, Oregon, Washington. Now you have New Mexico, uh, uh, Nevada, Arizona, Colorado. And as I mentioned before, this has serious consequences for national policy, especially energy policy, land policy. So I think national conservatives do need to make the Western United States a serious priority. They need to invest in it. They need to spend time out here. They need to connect with people. They need to share why their ideas are better. Or this is going to become a solid voting block uh, for more liberal ideas and liberal policies. You know, let's talk about someone who conservatives might look at as a success story. That's Lauren Boebert. She represents Colorado's third district in Congress. You have some thoughts about what she represents, and we'll get to that in a moment. But first, I want to ask you about a publicity photo that you're using to let folks know that she's speaking at the Colorado Convention Center as part of the summit. The photo shows Representative Boebert holding a pretty big rifle. She's obviously a big proponent of the Second Amendment. But what do you see in that photograph that is important for the summit? So good question. Uh, we did an entire 30-minute documentary uh, with Lauren Boebert, Congressman Boebert, uh, on uh, the Second Amendment. When we sat down, we had a good conversation. We went to a gun range, we fired off a few guns, and we went back to Shooter's Grill, and she made steak for everybody. And uh, it's it kind of fun to have a, a congressperson cooking and making a steak. That, that doesn't happen with most members of Congress, but she was there to uh, uh, to provide that. And uh, then we uh, we had a conversation about the Second Amendment. We asked questions like, what is the real conservative response to the mass shootings that are happening in Colorado? And so we had a, a good dialogue and good conversation. But Western conservatives understand that the Second Amendment is not about hunting and it's not about personal defense. It's there instilled to protect against government tyranny. And uh, and so going back to the original intent of the Constitution, which is a strategic priority of Colorado Christian University and the Centennial Institute, why do we have the Second Amendment? Was it written? Is it antiquated? Does it need to be changed? Uh, these are all conversations we had, but uh, I think Western conservatives appreciate uh, strong leaders like Congresswoman Boebert and her defense of the original intent of the Constitution. And when they look at that picture, that's that's what they see from her. I think it is also fair to say she is a very polarizing figure. Why is she someone that you would put front and center when it comes to conservative issues and conservative leaders? 
So this is a good question on the nature of the conservative movement right now. And something that I've always appreciated about the Western Conservative Summit is that we combine the intellectual conservatism with the grassroots conservatism, right? So in this summit, we're very explicit about this. We try to make it happen every summit. This summit, you have intellectual leaders out of the Hoover Institute, like Victor Davis Hanson, that are going to be coming and, and speaking at the Western Conservative Summit. But you have grassroots leaders and grassroots uh, attendees of the summit really appreciate the kind of fighting spirit of, of someone like Congresswoman Lauren Boebert. And they appreciate that uh, she's not just kind of pumping the brakes on a liberal agenda that's happening in Washington, D.C. She is uh, driving a conservative agenda. She wants to see changes. It's really why a lot of conservatives were really drawn to President Donald Trump. They want someone that's going to push the agenda in the other direction. So many of the kind of uh, previous conservative leaders, previous Republicans felt moderate. They felt like they were just kind of pumping the brakes on, a, on an eventual liberal agenda that was going to take place. And so to actually go back the other direction and fight for uh, the constitutional values that we appreciate, uh, uh, that we support, is something that grassroots conservatives appreciate. When you talk about what worked for Donald Trump and his road to the White House in the 2018 midterms, and of course in the 2020 election, there seemed to be some fatigue with Trump in that sort of bare knuckled brand of fighting, and it seemed to alienate unaffiliated voters. Why do you think embracing the fighters is the way to go for the Republicans in terms of regaining the White House or control of Congress? Yeah, great question. I think um, that is it, it's going to come down to um, the policies and how they played out. So right now we think of, of Donald Trump, right, as in his tweets and his interactions with the media and all that stuff. But President Biden's policies are leading to inflation in this country. They're leading to uh, problems in our communities. I mean, all the challenges that we're facing on the international stage right now, watching them in the G7 summit, I think people are going to go, are going to look at the future and go, okay, well, uh, he may have been combative or we may not necessarily agree with the tactics of a more uh, aggressive grassroots conservative, but my goodness, the policies are not working. Gas is and so expensive. Lumber is so expensive. We do need to clarify. Uh, you said that there is inflation. There's not officially inflation in the economy right now. Um, <laughs> I think I think a lot more people are spending money on gas than they used to, and lumber and and food and a whole lot of other things. So I th I, I, I would disagree with that. I think I saw recently that was a two percent inflation. There's one more thing I want to ask you about before we go. Um, in some of this fight that we're talking about, it comes down to the way that Trump insisted, without evidence, the 2020 election was stolen from him. Um, even with numerous courts ruling that that wasn't the case, it's a there's a um, audit going on right now that's taking place in Arizona after two independent audits that found that there were no problems there. Folks who are critical of these audits say that they're happening because people are still loyal to the former president. In about the 30 seconds we have left, how do you distinguish between Donald Trump and the Republican Party? I think it's changed. I think Donald Trump has drastically changed the Republican Party for good. And I'm speaking only in my personal capacity here because we're not involved in campaigns or politics with the Centennial Institute. But uh, the, I worked for Mitt Romney prior to this. I've been involved in, in the conservative movement, Republican Party for a long time. Uh, but the grassroots blue collar support that Donald Trump created for the, for the Republican Party is incredibly valuable. 
and and beneficial. And um, I uh, I think that's a good thing. Um, I think we can move away from some of the more bombastic types of rhetoric, but the policies were right. The the idea of fighting for a conservative agenda was right. And that has been a great benefit to the conservative movement as a whole and to the Republican Party. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Avery. God bless you all. Jeff Hunt is the director of Colorado Christian University's Centennial Institute and the organizer of the Western Conservative Summit that's in Denver and online this weekend. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This year, the NBA has named a most unlikely, most valuable player. When Nikola Jokic first arrived in the NBA from Serbia, most people couldn't even pronounce his name. Well, now Jokic is the league's MVP. The reason why Nikola is a great player is he makes everyone around him better. Passes cross court, deflected. Dozier with the steal. Give it to Jokic. He's away. After a season for the record books, CPR's Vic Vela profiles the Nuggets' Nikola Jokic. Come to CPR.org for the story. What do you say to a person who buys a newspaper in 2021? The new owners of the Gunnison Country Times have heard congratulations and condolences, sometimes in the same breath. Alan Wartis and Issa Forrest took the reins of the paper this month. The newspaper's history goes back to the late 1800s, and it's been around in its current incarnation since 1975. Even in a tumultuous news market, Wartis and Forrest have ideas to keep it going. Alan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Avery. It's a pleasure to be here. You and Isa have a relationship with the Gunnison Country Times that goes way back. Tell me a little bit about what you did at the paper before you got the keys. Well, I think I wrote my first story in 1998, so that's definitely way back. I like to say I was writing stories um, for the paper in this community long before some of the big issues that we uh, that we face today. And, and Issa has, in fact, delivered the paper through long, cold winter nights um, many times. So, yeah, we have, a, we have a deep history here. So nationally, newspaper circulation and revenue, it is way down. A University of North Carolina study found nearly 1,800 newspapers closed between 2004 and 2018. You're probably tired of this question, but why buy a newspaper right now? <laughs> yeah, well, an elected official recently used the word valiant to describe this decision. <laughs> Brave. Um, so, yeah, you're right. I hear it all the time. Well, look, the, the fact that the marketplace is changing, and that is that people are shifting how they receive their news, uh, doesn't mean that people are less interested in the news, particularly at a local level, where we we really are the only source of news, uh, along with our uh, chief competitor, the Crested Butte News Up Valley, the only source of news in our community for things that are actually happening on the ground here. Um, and so I think uh, our business model and, and our philosophy and sort of the pledge that we make to our readers is that uh, we're going to attempt to bridge gap and and really uh, dive into this new digital marketplace. Having said that, our print product is quite strong. People are loyal to it in this marketplace. Um, but we have high hopes and intentions to add in some of the, the other ways that people are consuming news and information, particularly podcasts and um, um, audio features of the kind that you, that you are so good at producing. Um, video work. We're, we're going to do some live streaming of community events so that we 
we sort of straddle these two worlds that people have worked so hard to figure out how to integrate. That's our plan. So it sounds like you're really working on the multimedia side of it, in addition to keeping the print paper that people really like to read. Oh, that's right. I mean, if if you love your print paper in the Gunnison Valley, um, we're going to keep delivering <laughs> exactly as, as you like. But we're also going to give you other options. How is the Gunnison Country Times doing in terms of money, staff, and resources before you took it over? Oh, it's a profitable business. I mean, and, and to... In that way, I, I give kudos to my uh, predecessor, Chris Dickey, for building and, and running really one of the exceptional papers in the United States. First of all, it's locally owned, which is not all that common anymore. Um, but also that um, you know, engagement with this community and delivering the product that, that they want, um, engaging the conversations that they want to have um, works here. And uh, so we're we're taking over not at a time when we need to you know rescue a sinking ship not at all, um, and we're very proud of that fact. And you see the role of a newspaper in the Gunnison Valley very differently than say a national newspaper, even one in a big a big metro area like Denver. Tell me a little bit more about that role. Well, yeah, you know, on the national scale, I think we've seen the industry of journalism sort of drift to the to the edges, to the fringes. Um, I'm, I'm not saying something um, radical there. I think everyone would agree that mostly we see um, reporting from, from the extremes. It's really hard to find at a national level anyone staking out the middle ground. But in small um, and, and medium-sized regional papers, we really have to do that. Um, the, the middle is where things get done. And in a in a small community like ours, and and that means we have to um, take real pains to make sure that we're including everyone's voice and everyone's perspective to the greatest extent possible. Um, that sets us apart from what most people would think of as the national news media these days. Um, it's it's really kind of a different animal to operate a a community newspaper and do community journalism. And you're covering covering those kind of capital I issues, but you're also covering community events and those sorts of things as well and spreading information in that way, right? Well, right. I mean, those are the things that matter to to our readers. I've, I'm going to paint it on the newsroom wall, um, this question. Uh, does it matter? And mm -hmm. why? And to whom? And when we look at our... Um, population and the people that are that are reading our newspaper and soon to be listening to our podcast, um, those questions are are often very different. Uh, of course, national trends matter to them as well, but it also matters how the school district is spending their money and um, and um, you know if we've got a national issue that has local impact, like for instance, uh, we, we have a the Gunnison sage-grouse, which is on the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, threatened list. Our people are more interested in how does that impact those ranchers that we know or those um, people who have built recreation businesses. Um, so we have to focus down to a, a much tighter um, sort of uh, range of, of people and issues as we report the news. Right. So news that is written for and by local residents is going to be inherently different than someone parachuting in. Tell yeah, we, we, we find that all the time. Tell me about some of the most important issues the Gunnison Country Times is keeping it eyes, its eyes on right now. Well, in this week's issue, for instance, we do a wildfire update 
Um, we've talked to our local lands managers and uh, emergency response professionals at the county level and asked them, you know, what are we looking at? Uh, because we all know the drought is developing and um, not really showing any signs of, of easing up anytime soon. So what does that mean for people um, who are dependent on public lands uh, going forward? How soon are we going to be in fire restrictions? I've al already mentioned the, the Gunnison sage grouse. That's sort of a perennial issue that we deal with. Um, but we're at the front lines of what is really developing as a national issue, and that is um, a real throttle on um, potential economic development because we have a workforce housing shortage. Nobody can find a house in the Gunnison County right now. Um, and prices are rising, and it's putting real pressure on local business owners to even maintain skeleton staff. So these are some of the things that are in this week's issue, and we're following them all the time. Looking forward to reading more of these stories. Alan, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Avery. It's a real pleasure. Alan Wartis and Issa Forrest are the new owners of the Gunnison Country Times. Wartis is also the owner of Alan Wartis Media. The 35th annual Ride for the Rockies is underway this week. Bicyclists are riding more than 400 miles and more than 28,000 foot climb. It's a test of physical and mental endurance. For a Highlands ranchman, it's also a test of his resolve. Six years ago, Samaritan cycling captain Tom Schween was on his way toward the finish line at Ride the Rockies in Westcliff. He was going more than 30 miles per hour on his bike when the unthinkable happened. A buddy of mine had crashed his carbon fiber bike two days before, and he was standing at the finish line, holding his hand up like this for me to come by him and high five him. I took my right hand off the handlebar, and about that time, wasn't looking down, hit a real small divot in the pavement, and my, my, basically my tire went 90 degrees. And I went straight over the handlebars, <clears throat> and I remember catapulting onto the pavement. Schween was unconscious for a moment. And when I woke up, I had blood coming out both ears. I had blood coming out both nostrils and my nose. I had all sorts of blood coming out my head. And I was literally in a place where I really didn't know what was going on. And um, <clears throat> there were three nurses right there with an ambulance, literally within 50 yards of me. And they were there in case anybody got hurt. He was taken to St. Mary's Hospital in Pueblo with eight facial fractures. A CAT scan revealed that Schween escaped serious brain injury. As he recovered, getting back on his bike was the last thing that was on his mind. And it meant an end to Samaritan Cycling, the team he captained, which raises money for the Samaritan House in Denver. I had a bike in California. I had a bike in Colorado. I was going to sell them both. I was done. Samaritan Cycling was done as an organization because there wasn't anybody who was doing what I was doing to just hold it together for the first five years. But five weeks later, something changed when he attended a Saturday Mass. The priest got done with his homily and he sat down and I'm sitting there. The Holy Spirit said, I'm not yet done with you here on earth. Continue your ministry. The next day I rode 100 miles. The expression, it's just like riding a bike, indicates a task that's easy once you've learned to do it. But for Schween, it was frightening. I was scared stiff. 
I got on my bike and for the first probably 40 miles, I was literally staring at the pavement right in front of me for fear of another, another divot in the pavement or hitting a rock or hitting something. And it was pretty scary the first couple times that I was back on a bike. Samaritan Cycling continued operating with Schween leading the expanding team. Since 2011, they've raised one and a quarter million dollars for the Samaritan House. Schween and his teammates will finish this year's Ride for the Rockies tomorrow. It's been three years since visitors could ride a train to the top of Pikes Peak. After $100 million renovation of the famous Cog Railway up the mountain, a brand new $65 million Summit House complex that's been under construction for years will greet them. CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce rode the train up the mountain to bring us the story. There's this moment when riding the Pikes Peak Cog Railway. You've been on this shining red train car clanking up through ponderosa pine and green aspen forests alongside waterfalls and sheer granite rock formations. And then quite suddenly you're out onto this barren, craggy landscape of boulders, lingering snowdrifts, marmots. The train pulls onto a short side track, and while you wait for another train to pass going back down, you realize it's a lot colder now. You've emerged from the tree line into a different, high alpine world. The riders around you pull on winter jackets over summery shirts, push the large windows up and closed to conserve heat. It really is amazing that it's back again. Train conductor Steve Huber has been working with the COG for a decade. He and his colleagues did much of the railway's exhaustive $100 million renovation. I mean, we took so many things apart, (laughs) and then we had to put it all back together, and here it is, back better than new. The train climbs the final steep switchbacks to the Pikes Peak Summit. And it's still an active construction site. Crews are in the final stages, completing the new Summit House complex, two stories of angular steel and glass, and tearing down the old Summit House from the 1960s. Just kind of talk about right here. Sandy Elliott is the park's operations administrator for the mountain. She points over and says the official USGS summit marker is buried beneath a pile of snow over there, alongside a new network of ADA-accessible walkways. 14,000. 115 feet. That's the official highest elevation. However, at this particular time, a construction crane towers above us atop a higher mound of heavy rock and debris nearby. Temporary, Elliot says. All of that material will be used to fill, to backfill where the old summit house was. Because I feel like I know a couple people who have Pikes Peak summit tattoos. Right. And, and we wouldn't want to invalidate those, up. those <laughs> yeah, tattoos. Exactly. <laughs> Walk inside the new Summit House, and it's hard to believe the building will open to the public in just over a week. Principal architect Stuart Coppage watches workers in hard hats still drilling and cutting, still installing final windows and railings. And they'll continue almost, you know, nonstop between now and then. They finally got a break in the weather, which has been a big part of it. You know, this spring was a pretty tough spring. The crews had to contend with multiple delays over the past few years, resulting from the extreme conditions. High winds, heavy precipitation, temperatures often 30 or 40 degrees colder than at the base of the mountain. Still, the renovated cog and the new Summit House, two massively expensive, massively complex high-altitude projects, 
are wrapping up within weeks of each other. Amy Long is Chief Innovation Officer for Visit Colorado Springs, a local nonprofit focused on tourism. It almost feels like a miracle that they came together at the same time. And just in time for post-pandemic adventure seekers. Long's office predicts the Pikes Peak region will see 35 to 40 percent more tourism this year over last, but slower perhaps than in 2019 pre-pandemic. Shu Schiller is visiting Colorado with her daughter Viviana and mother Iris. They're from Dayton, Ohio. They're bundled up in puffy coats, excitedly taking pictures from a concrete overlook stretching out above the expanse. I think it's a freedom. Right, it's freedom. The freedom to be able to smell and enjoy the fresh air, to be a normal human being. To not wear masks. Following a few blasts from the train's horn, Schiller and her family climb back aboard for the long descent down to Manitou Springs. Along with other visitors from Texas, Kansas, Missouri. Since the Cog Railway falls under the CDC's definition of public transportation, riders do still have to wear masks inside the train. From the summit of Pikes Peak, Dan Boyce, CPR News. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. We know that it is not possible to listen every day, so be sure to tune in Sunday mornings at 10 for the best of segments from the week. And we'd like to hear from you. On Twitter, we're at Colorado Matters, or you can send us an email, coloradomatters at cpr.org. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.